This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. And on today's show, we've got a couple of major topics, not as many uh, scattershot ones today. But number one, we're going to chat about Chuck Yeager, the, uh, the legendary pilot has passed away. So I know Alan's got a, a lot of, a lot to say about his legacy. Um, in our engineering segment, we'll talk about the 737 MAX and specifically how consumers can get confidence back in this plane, because I think it's really interesting. Most of us who are not aviation lifers, aerospace you know, engineers, we don't really know what happens with the FAA. I mean, we've heard on one hand, this is a, like the most technologically amazing plane. Like it's one of the best planes ever created, but then it's crashed twice and it's been this villain of the story. So we'll talk about how those two pieces get married and how people get back uh, flying in the 737 MAX with confidence. And lastly, we'll talk about Uber Elevate, who we did chat about last week, and they were sold to Joby Aviation uh, right after we had recorded that show. So we're going to talk about Uber um, and Joby and that whole uh, outlook. So Alan, number one, let's talk about Chuck Yeager. So who was Chuck Yeager? Chuck Yeager is probably the, the most identifiable, recognizable test pilot in the world. He's uh, a legend, you know, yeah. Yeah, there's really two, I think. Uh, and on, in the Soviet side, it's starting to be Yuri Gagarin, just because flying into space, that's a big name as a test pilot. And, and on the American side, it tended to be Chuck Yeager. There's a couple others in America that people could rattle off if you're in, in aviation, but Chuck Yeager was always the one. And a lot of it had to do with uh, the movie that was made based upon the book, The Right Stuff, uh, that Tom Wolfe wrote years and years ago, back in the 80s. Uh, and the thing about Chuck Yeager, and if you're, if, if you're interested in aviation, you should read Chuck Yeager's book, uh, The Autobiography, because it ex explains a lot about his his life. Uh, he came from, I believe it was West Virginia, if I remember correctly, as a kid. Um, really young, enlisted, uh, wanted to fly. Uh, ended up in World War II, shooting down um, some enemy aircraft. Got shot down in France. Uh, hit out in France. Him and another pilot, I think he carried another injured pilot across the Pyrenees Mountains. And if you've ever been to the Pyrenees Mountains, you know, because he had to get to Spain. But if you've ever been to the Pyrenees Mountains or seen the Pyrenees Mountains, it's like, it's like the Rockies in the United States. Those mountains are huge. And it's cold up there and there's snow on them. And they were evading uh, German soldiers all the way to get to Spain. And once he got back into Spain, he got, he got himself back to the United States and then started flying again in combat. Um, and then after the war, he ended up uh, working in Ohio, at Dayton, Ohio for a little while, and then getting sent to Edwards Air, Air Force Base, or Air Base, I guess at the time, and uh, becoming a test pilot. Obviously, his, his most recognizable uh, claim to fame was break, the first person to break the sound barrier back in 1947 with the Bell X-1, which was essentially a rocket ship with wings, and mm -hmm. it was full of rocket motors. And, the, and he did it while 
he had a couple of busted ribs and a banged up shoulder because he had he had fallen off a horse the night before. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of crazy. He's not the biggest physical guy. At the time, a lot of test pilots, you couldn't, it's like astronauts at the time. They're not the tallest people you see in the world. They're not like uh, athletes you see today, like in an NFL team or a baseball team. He's not a very tall person, but he's sort of built, built right for flying. And he has tremendous eyesight. His eyesight was unbelievably good. So the, the sort of the lore from Chuck Yeager um, in the aviation community was like he was the fastest, hottest test pilot forever. And uh, I, I think there's a couple of things to remember about Chuck Yeager. And if, if you had followed Chuck Yeager on Twitter, Chuck Yeager was very active on Twitter until literally a couple of months ago. Uh, and his recollection and things that he would promote or some of the things that he would remember or bring up um, were just fascinating. And you can go back and look, because Twitter kind of archives that, you can go back and look at some of his discussions about breaking the sound barrier and some of the things that he did. But it also came with somewhat of a consequence. And and this is the part I don't think you, you read a lot about. And it, I thought the news about Chuck Yeager passing away was actually very quiet. Um maybe because he'd been on around for a long time and people have sort of forgotten about all the things that he had done. Uh, but, you know, being, being in that life is very difficult. Being a flight test pilot at the time was extremely serious business because pilots died regularly. It isn't like today where an airplane crashing is, is, uh, uh, you know, a big event. It, it is an airplane crashing today is a, is a big event. At, at the time when they were, you know, let's just talk about late 40s, just after World War II, through the 1950s, into the 60s, uh, airplanes crashed all the time because they, were just, they just didn't have the engineering. A lot of it was experimental, and they would just go out there and get the data. And that's what those flight test pilots are there for, was to go out and get the data so that the engineers could figure out how to get the aircraft to the next level. And Chuck Yeager uh, had a couple of bad accidents. Uh, in which he was lucky to survive in. <laughs> so it seems like he always had nine lives, right? Now that's the thing about Chuck Yeager. He's always seemed to have nine lives. I think if you haven't, if you, if, if you don't want to read the book, watch the movie Chuck Yeager in, in the right stuff. He's actually in that movie. He's a bartender at, at Poncho's, hmm. at Poncho's uh, uh, ranch, which was a sort of place where pilots hung out, 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 out in the desert at Edwards Air Force Base. Um and so he's in the movie there. You can see him in there. You can see him in there. It's sort of it's sort of funny if you you know sort of inside baseball there. But I think in today's world, he just he came out of a different era. And uh, my wife was pointing out this morning like how old he was when he broke the sound barrier. He's in his early twenties, right? He, yeah, he I was doing the math in my head. Yeah, he's, he had to have been born in what 1923 because he died in 97. Yeah. So, 1947, he's 24 years old. Right. Yeah. And he'd always been a pilot in the, in, in the World War. So, he was young, right? And uh, he's lucky. I mean, part of it's skill. Part of it's he had a lot of skill sets. He's smart. Uh, and, but he could get himself out of bad situations or he could figure out a way not to get into bad situations. And he taught a lot of pilots. That's the other thing he did, too. He trained a lot of pilots on how to fly airplanes and... Uh, it's just uh, times have evolved in a, in a in an odd sense when you think about the sort of that, that sort of personality type uh very strong-willed very sort of military base which he was he's in the military for a long time and 
uh, you just don't see a lot of that anymore. You just don't. And so I think it's really hard for, especially kids now, to even relate to something like that. Because who's your hot test pilot today? <laughs> you know, we just sent up to, uh, people to the space station a couple of weeks ago, and I couldn't name one of them. Yeah. Couldn't name one of them. Right? They just don't stick out like that. It's it's, it's almost commonplace. The things that Chuck Yeager did back in the 40s and 50s were so uncommon. It just set the world on fire. Uh, but today, we do them all the time. Breaking the sound barrier happens hundreds of times a day all around the world. Easily. Easily does. So, you know, yeah. it's it's a huge loss. I think most of it is, for me, it's mostly about a loss of that kind of personality style of um, get up, do the hard work, put in, you know, do do the right stuff and, and uh, make the world a little bit better. And, uh, you know, I think the military has a lot to be proud of there. I think that they do. And particularly Air Force totally does. Well, and, and for me not knowing it, I actually am interested in reading his book. Um, it, he seems to just like embody that cowboy mentality like of America. Like he was just like, yep, let's do it. Let's break the sound barrier. Let's mm. just, I mean, he, like you said, he seemingly had nine lives. It says that on a bunch of his flights, like you said, like in 1953, he was with the, uh, he hit Mach 2.44 yep. and hit inertia coupling. And had like the plane went to some violent roll and pitch motions and he cut the engine and then like regained uh, control of the plane 50,000 feet later. <laughs> it's right. Like, like, just sounds asinine. But he just like, I, you know, like I said, it just seems like the modern cowboy just wrangling planes, like all these new designs into, into con control, like breaking stallions almost. Oh, uh, yeah. I think it is like that. I would describe it somewhat like that, yeah. But but the I I think the thing that always sort of stuck out about Chuck Yeager that he wasn't a cowboy in the sense that he was doing. Uh, obviously, he's in a dangerous field. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. But he took calculated risks, right? He wouldn't he wouldn't put himself in a situation where he knew he was going to get killed. I don't think yeah. that was his way that things ran there. I think he had a good sense of how things work mechanically. I think he could understand what was happening in an airplane, how an airplane responded. If you read his Twitter feeds, um, the best airplane he ever fl flew was a P-51 Mustang. And it's one of the coolest airplanes ever. But that was the airplane that he ended up, in the end of World War II, ended up flying a good bit. And just because he, of the way it handled and how much power it had. And I think he learned a lot about how aircraft work and when to push forward and when to pull back a little bit. And you're, when you're describing the time in which he you know, got up to, I don't know, 80,000 feet and the airplane went crooked on him. And I think that's the one where he, he, he hit the cockpit canopy so hard with his helmet that he cracked the canopy. <laughs> so, you know, those most people die in that situation. He was extremely mm -hmm. lucky. And the time that he got fire in his suit and all, all that, you should read the book, watch the movie, you don't have time, but the, the movie is very long. But it's a fascinating life, and it's, it's, it's sad to hear of his passing. All right, so in our engineering segment today, we're going to talk about the 737 MAX. Obviously, last week in the show, we talked about the fact that it's back, right? It's, it's been approved. It's airworthy again in the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, but that still doesn't change a lot of people's minds about it, right? Everyone's got a certain feeling it was certainly like a villainized plane uh, or vilified plane mm -hmm. and um but yet 
like you've said uh, many times, FAA uh, regulators and engineers are very competent, very thorough people. So, Alan, how can people be sure the 737 MAX is safe? And why should they trust it? I think you should have trusted to begin with in the sense that uh, there was a lot of effort uh, to make the aircraft safe. It wasn't like, there, there was no indication, I st and I, st I still stand by this today, there was no indication in any of the reports or any of the data that came out of, hey, we're designing this aircraft to be risky or unsafe. I, they the There was... I think normal banter for any sort of large organization complaining about whatever project they're working on, that's normal. Uh, but in terms of you know following the, the, the methodology and the logic to get to the point where the aircraft was certified at the time, and there is got to be some sense in the general public that the engineering and anti-aircraft program is not malevolent that there's not any sort of bad intention here just to push anything by uh, to put some sort of unsafe aircraft in the air because you're trying to profit on it. I can guarantee you that not a single engineer that worked on that product got a pay raise because it got out sooner. That just doesn't go on like that, right? This is not Wall Street, right? It is a very regulated, very monitored. It's an eight to five kind of job to do those things. Uh, no one has a vested interest in it, so to speak. You may own some Boeing stock, but that's about it. You're not going to get independently mm -hmm. wealthy off it. So the intentions, I think, are good, right? I, I think from the engineering standpoint, you're like, yeah, they did all that. They checked all the boxes. They did their homework. They understood what the risks were. A thing that bit them, two parts, I think the bit, thing that bit the 737 was the OA probe. Uh, having problems and the repaired AOA probes having problems that were not verified or caught before they were installed in the pilots. The pilots had issues controlling the aircraft, even after the service bulletin had been put out to say, if if the airplane nose is over or you have a, some sort of uncommanded uh, horizontal stab issue, shut it off. And they had commands to do that. They had instructions to do that. And in that second crash, either the pilots were not informed of it or they just ignored it. Who knows? You're never going to find out that. But in terms of the safety of an aircraft, there is tens of thousands of hours of research and study and testing and effort that goes into making sure those aircraft are safe enough that those that your family is okay to fly on them. And I would almost guarantee you that there's 99.9% .9 of the people that worked on that aircraft would fly on it a year ago as they would today. Uh, so I think we need to be very careful about the way some portion of the media likes to blow things up and not just to blow them, not so much to blow them up or to portray them. Uh, mm -hmm. and the way that congressional, uh, representatives or representatives in Congress like to do that too, because it gives them a, a, a platform to, create turmoil, to create votes, whatever their intentions are, get on television, God knows what. But take a step back a minute, right? Things we're reading today, if you're getting if you're getting your advice on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram about anything to do with anything engineering, 
it's the wrong place. You got the wrong resources. You're just making really bad decisions. Those are not those are not resources for anybody to do anything with. Uh, and you know, it, it's fine if you're checking out to see how the uh, the neighbor's vacation went. Awesome, but to rely on sort of the, the hearsay garbage that goes on in social media to make decisions about what airplane you're going to fly on that is ridiculous dig a little bit deeper find better resources than that and that and that's probably one of the most frustrating things about aviation today is a lot of the discourse that goes on isn't and not so much isn't valid but it's not worth anything because then nobody knows Mm -hmm. right when if you read an article in a um i don't want to name any publications but if if you read an article about 737 max uh from a typical generic journalist not someone who delves into aviation that article is full of our uh, just errors flat out errors and you read them all the time right but if i'm in the general public i don't know that i have no idea i have to rely upon the sources that are laying in front of me i think that's the sort of the gelman problem that we have is that the the resources that you have to make educated decisions are not there. They're not there. Or the problem is so complex, you can't make a decision about it anyway. So I don't know if there's a real answer to it, Dan. I don't know. But I just, right now, it's just probably a bad time because the election's gone over. And anytime you're on social media, like Twitter's making comments about the election. And like, who at Twitter's making those decisions? Like, they don't know anything about anything. And they don't know anything about airplanes either. (laughs) <laughs> that's one thing they guarantee they don't know anything about is airplanes and aircraft safety. They have no idea how the, how the process is done. They have no idea all the effort that's gone into it. And it doesn't mean it, it, every product pushes out is perfect, but it, it doesn't mean that there's sort of some bad intentions there. And I still feel like there's a, there is this part of the journalistic community that is pushing. There was some malfeasance, uh, bad actors on the Boeing side or on the airline side for that matter. I, I don't, I don't think those are true. I think what it come down to, there was an accident. And if situations were slightly different, they wouldn't happen. It's a, it's a, it's a connection of a series of roughly random events that all seem to line up for the worst time. It's awful that those things happen and we learn from them. And if there's anything that's happened in the last 10 months is Boeing's learned a ton about certifying airplane again. All right, so in our, our final segment today, uh, where we talk about EVTOLs and electric tech, we're going to revisit Uber, Uber Elevate and their recent sell to Joby Aviation. So we chatted about Uber <laughs> Elevate last week and a lot of uncertainty. Like, what like what are they doing? What is their role um, in EVTOL development? And of course, um, just like clockwork, a couple of days later, out comes the news that Yes, they're getting rid of that arm. And also they've sold off pretty much all of their future forecasting arms of the business. Uber has sold a $500 million stake in Uber Freight. Right. They've sold off their uh, autonomous vehicle uh, section, which was yeah. um, uh, Aurora uh, Innovation. Um, so, Alan, what's, what's, what is Uber doing and why are they shedding all of these sort of like future looking assets? Well, I, I noticed this a couple of weeks ago. If you had watched uh, the LinkedIn profiles for people that worked in the upper echelon of Uber Elevate, they were leaving the company and going on to new ventures. 
not defined. They didn't have, it didn't say they had a position in another company necessarily. It was like they were just leaving. And that as an investor, if, if, and I'm not invested in Uber, thank God. But if, if I were an investor, I would have been really worried about that because those kind of departures indicate there's people leaving because this, this organization is about to end or be substantially restructured in a not a positive way. So, uh, when those departures happen, like, man, this is not good. And Uber has been in trouble financially because they really haven't created a, a profit center yet. They're still looking for profit, right? They're still living on investment money, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, as 2020 drags on and less people are using Uber as a transportation service, there's just not enough cash to keep things floating. You have to cut everything that... Uh, that you don't need. And if you think about how Boeing has cut off their sort of experimental eVTOL section of their of their business out in, in St. Louis, they cut that off. And a lot of other aircraft companies that have the rights to be in that space have stopped all work. Uh, it made no sense for Uber to be in that anymore. And I, I think, <laughs> listen to podcasts talk about what is happening in sort of the Joby uber space and and what possible connection there is i don't think there's any possible connection besides you can cut out uber funding anything else right if, if you have control of that sort of uh marketplace on how to deliver your service to customers which uber does awesome but um uber's not investing in any other evtl company that's for sure elevate's not so Here's if you look at the financial landscape and the engineering landscape in the EVTO market, you have to. If you're looking at serious contenders right now, you need to find the contenders that have at least a half a billion dollars in invested money available to them today. If you don't have a half a billion dollars in investable funds today, you're not going to get to the finish line in the near future. You're just not. And Joby has Toyota money. Uh, Lilium has some big investors. Uh, Volocopter may have some investors. Not totally sure about how they're doing, but Whisk had Larry Ellison um, money. It did at one point. It doesn't sound like that's going on in the future. But as an as an outside investor, Dan, if you saw a company that was going to talk about spending a half a billion dollars to create an airplane, and they don't have a half billion dollars available to you to them. As an outside investor, are you investing in that company at a small level? I would, I would say no, right? I, I wouldn't, because uh, you know whatever I invested in it is at high risk and most likely just going to go away. Yeah, and I, I don't own Uber stock either. Um, yeah, it just seems that at some point, like it comes due, and it seems like this is a good move by Uber that they're finally trying to stick to their core yeah. business and become profitable because for yeah. forever. I mean, they're not a young company anymore and they're still not turning a profit. So at some point it's like, look, we can't just keep trying to expand and change the future of transportation. Like, let's try to make money today and then take it one step at a time. And it seems like that's what they're doing, which makes sense. Like they they bought Lime, the scooter company. And uh, I don't know how that acquisition's doing, but Lime is it's in here. In, it's here in D.C. It's in a lot of the major cities. Right. It seems like it's a, um, a prominent. Mm-hmm. It's certainly a prominent um you know, scooter sharing arm of their business now. And then I know Lime has just acquired the company Jump, which also had scooters, but more so electric bikes because I've seen them rebranded here in DC as well. So 
those are all like real today technologies. Like people are taking electric bikes. They're taking yeah, rental true. bikes that are not electric. They're taking rental scooters and they're taking Ubers around. So those are like the things that make sense today or if they're trying to, you know, bring their cash back to the, to the heart of the business and actually get profitable, that seems to be a good move. So yeah, it just seemed like we didn't, you and I were talking about Uber Elevate off and on the last, you know, whole six months. And it's like, what is Uber Elevate and what are they doing? Are they really going to build all these planes? Are they going to build no. these, these locations, these, these airports for them on top of no. Manhattan skyscrapers? Like what no. is their end game? And it, it's just like, they want to throw their money and be Uber everything, but it seems like it's just hard to do that today with Lyft being a major competitor and all these other companies that are major competitors to like self-driving cars. Like, are they going to beat Tesla to the market? Like no. they weren't, no. right? No, no. So it's no. like, well, why, why are we in that race? Like, let's just try to do a couple of things well. And it seems like that's what they're doing. Well, in their business model, I, I think they've pitched a Amazon-ish business model for a while, which is that they're a consignment company. They don't own the car. They just get a percentage of the deal. Right, they provide the mm -hmm. software to, to connect driver with user, and every one of those transactions, you get to keep a percentage of it. It's a consignment, uh, and aircraft are not like that. I, I don't know in what world they thought aircraft are going to be like that because aircraft are expensive, and it's and they don't tend to have independent operators. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't tend to be the model because aircraft are expensive to operate and to own, unlike a $20,000 car, Kia of some sort. It's mm -hmm. a totally, totally different marketplace. And I and I do think, again, let's look at the upside, downside risk to this. If if one of my Uber drivers, uh, and it's, it's not an employee of Uber, he just he's an independent contractor, gets into a car accident, Nobody knows. Nobody, you're not know, reading the newspaper or seeing anything about that. But I guarantee you, if one of the Uber Elevate aircraft eVTOLs hits the dirt, it's going to be on the front page of every newspaper. It's just basically the same discussion I was listening to today about autom automatic or automated um, trucks that could deliver packages across the country. The first accident that happens there. Is going to stop that business from happening and it's the same thing here it really is all right well that'll do it for today's episode of struck if you're new to the show thank you so much for listening and please leave a review and subscribe on itunes spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts check out the weatherguard lightning tech youtube channel for video episodes full interviews and short clips from the show and follow us on linkedin twitter instagram and facebook our handle is at wg lightning Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.